The scripture reading today comes to us from Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Good morning, everyone. It is a delight to be able to gather together here this morning uh, to be able to worship God and hear from his word. Uh, as, as there are a lot of newer faces these, uh, this time around, um, my name is Jacob Kim, one of the assistant pastors here of our church, and I'm, I'm really glad that you can join us today. Uh, we also have a couple guests who are joining today for the first time. Uh, we have Ron, uh, met to my right. Thank you, Ron. Let's welcome Ron together. Thanks for joining us today. We also have uh, Jay. Can you just lift up your hand? There you go. Thank you. Welcome, Jay. Uh, and for anyone else that we have not been able to acknowledge as, as a guest, uh, we, we're thankful that you are here. And if you haven't had the opportunity, please fill out one of our Connect cards so that we can keep you informed of what's going on in our ministry. Uh, well, we are here in Titus chapter 2. And just give you a little background about this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his beloved disciples, Titus. Uh, it's, it's one of those letters that's known as a, a pastoral letter because it gives you information and understanding of, of what you ought to expect from pastors and what pastors need to be doing in the church. Titus is one of those individuals who's a disciple of Paul, and he was left in an island called Crete, which is just below the mainland of Greece, to uh, care for a very young church. He wrote this letter to the beloved disciple while Paul himself was either in or on his way to another Greek city called Nicopolis. And he wanted, after Titus you know, finishes affairs in Crete, to come and be with Paul in uh, Nicopolis because Titus was a very trustworthy disciple. Uh, you, can, you can just hear glimpses of, of what he was entrusted to do when he wrote letters to the Corinthians. But, but this was a man that is a trustworthy individual, and I'm sure his presence brought much relief and peace to Paul. But Titus was placed in Crete for the purpose of setting up this young church by appointing elders in every town and making sure that good and healthy doctrines are being taught. In all of Paul's letters, when you read in, in one of any of the things that he has written, uh, I think it's helpful at times to really focus and reflect on that introduction portion, the first six to eight verses that he has in the beginning of his letters. Because it, it can give you a good sense of the theme, the reason why he's writing a letter to that particular church or individual. And so we find in chapter 1 that Paul, he identifies as the apostle of Jesus Christ, who serves those whom God has called, whom those God has chosen, so that they can have right knowledge of the truth, which will be consistent with godly living. Here, once again, we see that by having right understanding and knowledge of who God is, the natural outcome ought to be godly conduct in the way you live. And the way you live in a godly way should come from the right knowledge of who God is. And we live in a godly way with the hope that there is eternal life that God has promised even before the world was made. 
which we really can call it the good news or the gospel, that the promises of, to his people and the work of redemption and salvation has been uttered before the world was even created. And we can be assured that all the promises that God has spoken will not fail, as he says to Titus, because God never lies. And the gospel has been revealed to God's people like you and me through preaching, which people like Paul and your ordained ministers have been commanded to do by God who saves people. It's important for Titus to hear these words in the beginning of the letter and for Titus to believe in what Paul is uttering to him because Titus is in a very difficult place with very difficult people. The Cretans had a notorious reputation for being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And these reputations were made by even one of their own prophet and philosopher. And even Paul, uh, spending some time in Crete, acknowledges, yeah, these people are really liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But Titus is called to be faithful in preaching, teaching, and exhorting nonetheless, even when he's not seeing immediate or strong results, because it is ultimately God who saves people. And God has saved people in Crete to have the right knowledge that will result in right living. As a Christian reading this letter to Titus, it is extremely encouraging. And I encourage you to take some time to read it on your own and be encouraged by the content of this letter. Because what, what it tells us is there are places of bad reputation in people and cities. There may be bad reputations of Northern Virginia, and there may be bad reputations of Northern Virginians. Uh, but, but even despite the bad reputations, the, the reputation sh- does not stop God from saving people. And the bad reputation of the place and people should not stop people from planting churches there. So, so it's extremely encouraging for us as Christians, wherever we may be, to know that God is on a mission and he is saving people regardless of what that area is known for, regardless of what type of people may reside there. But the letter to Titus is also incredibly challenging to us as Christians because it's a, book, it's a letter that calls us to be faithful even when the days are growing evil and the ministry is extremely difficult. Because you and I, it's easy to simply quit and move on. But Paul tells Titus to stay and fulfill his task as a minister to difficult people in a difficult place. My last word uh, before we go into the sermon in the introduction of our uh, passage here. Uh, I would encourage you, when you have that opportunity to read it to your, uh, with, um, by yourself, that you would read it not as the recipient of this letter, but read it as the reason for this letter. In other words, don't read it as if Paul is speaking to you. Don't put yourself in Titus' shoe. Don't read it as if Paul is speaking to you. Read it as if Paul is speaking about you. You lying, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Why well, everyone's so serious here? At least nine o'clock, there was some laughter when I said that, but <laughs> you guys are already convicted, maybe. <laughs> but I hope what you're about to hear this morning will be encouraging to you in what God has done, but that it will also challenge you as as you hear what God is calling you to do and how He's calling you to live. So join with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your wonderful grace and kindness and goodness that is revealed to us every single day. Even in moments where we are not aware, we help us to know that you are good. And we pray that as the word of God is being preached and Christ being presented, that we, O Lord, would receive eyes of faith to behold him and find our peace and joy in him despite the chaos and the difficulties we experience here 
in this world. Uh, We pray that the word will be faithfully preached and that your spirit would bring not only the knowledge but the heart of obedience to all the members of our church that we may be a blessing to the nations and obedient people who will be the salt and light. We thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, as, as you may know, I, I have a, a 10-year-old son and a 3-year-old daughter. And um, as I observe children grow, including my little girl, I am just amazed at how kids grow. Um, they, they really grow up so fast. And, and at a certain point in their lives, they, they come to this mindset where they want to do everything by themselves, even when they're not capable of doing it. And then they get upset when they wanted to do something, but a grown-up intervenes and does it for them. Watching my daughter, there is this need in her to be misindependent. She she has this great desire to do everything and anything by herself. Let me do it. No, I want to do it. At the same time, while she strives to be independent, she's also someone who has a lot of fear in this world because there's so much to know, and she knows that she doesn't know much. She demands independence in things uh, like opening a pickle jar, which is impossible for you to do if your hand is the size of a bar of soap. Or she demands to handle things that toddlers really are not supposed to be handling, like the stove or hot pots. And yet, despite wanting to be so independent, she refused to do the things that she is more than capable of doing, like cleaning up her toys cleaning up her other toys, or cleaning up her spilled milk, and cleaning up her other toys. She's adamant to figure out her limitations and go beyond it while refusing to do what needs to be done right in front of her, even at the command of her parents. Does that sound familiar to anyone? For, for to our parents, probably, but perhaps even yourselves, <laughs> having that type of mindset. And then there are times when she is so insecure about herself, when Daphne and I try to challenge her to try something. She just encloses herself with arms around, and she says, I can't do it. I can't do it. See, I can't do it without even trying. Like, Thea, you can do it. Just try it. We, we think you can do this. Just go ahead and try. Oh, I can't do it. We don't know where that comes from. We train her, and and we're we're raising her to be a courageous and strong woman who grows in the fear of the Lord. And there are moments where she just refuses and grips with fear. So while I love watching her grow from this infant to a toddler and now to this demanding child, I also observe in her a desire to be more than what she's capable of doing while being rebellious and lazy and seeing the world with great fear. Now, perhaps... When you examine your lives, they may not be so different from the experiences of my three-year-old. And I'm not saying that if you share these same desires to test your limits, or if you are lazy, or if you're crippled with fear, that you have some growing up to do. Maybe that is the case for some. But like my daughter, perhaps the reason why you have these desires, or you are rebellious, or you are gripped with fear, is that you do not know, or you have forgotten the very important truth. That God has worked to save us by his grace. He, he is currently working in us by his grace. And that he will bring us to the end by his grace. So in our sermon this morning, I want to share three ways of how God's grace is present in our lives. Number one, grace that saves. 
Number two, we have received grace that trains. And number three, we have grace that gives hope. So we've been given grace that saves. We've been given grace that trains. And we have been given grace that gives hope. And so Paul starts here in the passage telling us what the grace of God has done in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This grace of God which has appeared is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which had been prophesied by all the prophets in the Old Testament. And the all people in that phrase, is he's talking about all types of people. This salvation is not just for the nation of Israel or for the Jewish people. It's not, it, it's, it's, More than that, it's also for the non-Jewish people. It's for the rich and the poor. It's for the powerful and the weak. In other words, simply, Paul is telling us that God does, he can, and he does save anyone, regardless of your background, your, your, your status, whatever it may be, that God can and he does save anyone whom he chooses to save. And those who are saved are saved by God's grace. It is an undeserved gift that is given to us through the work that Jesus has accomplished on behalf of all those who believe. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of salvation. See, no human being in the history of mankind could ever earn God's favor because everything that we do is somehow tainted with sin. And so everything that we do will never be enough to earn God's favor. Only Jesus is the, only, the sole person who has been able to earn God's favor through his perfect living and obedience. And he earned it. And yet he gave it to us freely as we believe and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Paul further explains that this grace, this goodness and loving kindness of God, appeared and saved us not because we did anything right. In fact, when God's goodness and kindness appeared to save us in Christ, he says, we were foolish, we were disobedient. We, are being led as, we have been led astray. We have been slaves to various passions and pleasures. We have been malicious and envious. We hated people and people hated us. But God cleansed us, he says in chapter 3, and poured out his Holy Spirit on us through Jesus. When he says he poured out his Holy Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit took everything that Jesus has accomplished and then brought it to us, crediting to us all that Jesus did so that it's as if we did what Christ has done, and that in God's perspective, we in Christ have lived the perfect life and earned his favor, even though it was Jesus who did all the work to earn it on our behalf. So Christ has done the hard work, and through faith in Christ, it is a free gift given to all types of people who believe. Isn't this such a good news? to the liars, to the evil beasts, to the lazy gluttons, isn't this a wonderful news that even for such people, they can, they, they can receive salvation from God? Isn't this wonderful to hear for those of us who are addicted to pornography or for those of us who have been guilty of spreading gossips or slandering people's good names? This is good news for those who have been murdering people in their hearts through their hatred for others or for those who have used the Lord's name in vain. This is good news for those who are struggling with discontentment, anxiety, and bitterness. This is good news to all the cheaters and haters and all the types of people that Taylor Swift used to sing about. And this is good news for Taylor Swift too. 
Thank you for laughing. (laughs) (laughs) But as you're here this morning, hearing the list of the people that can receive the salvation, what are you this morning? What are you this morning as you have come to our service? Whatever you may be, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all types of people. But grace does not end there. The grace of God saves, but the grace of God also trains. The Cretans were, as some commentators put it, unpromising people. They were hopeless individuals that that you would set a standard so low for them in order for you to avoid any sort of disappointment, and yet you would still end up getting disappointed by them. However, even if they were unpromising people, the Apostle Paul still expected expected the Cretans to produce qualities of Christian character. Even though people would look at the Cretans and think, I have no hope that you're going to change. I have no hope that you're going to actually do godly things. The Apostle Paul still expected them to produce qualities of Christian character. Now, he's obviously talking about the Christians who reside in Crete because he's not expecting non-believers to act like Christians. But these individuals who are characterized as being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, they are Christians. They profess in Jesus. They they claim to believe. They're just really young and immature believers that need ministers and elders to lead them a lifestyle that will bring glory to God. You see, the work of ministers and the church, for that matter, is is it, it does not end in conversion. The work that we're called to do does not end by converting people, bringing people into professing uh, faith. Remember what our Lord Jesus said in, in his great commission, that we are not to make converts of all nations, but we are to make disciples of all nations, teaching people to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. So it's not that we, our job is not done when we are able to fill our seats and have people come and have them profess that they're believers in Jesus, but we're to teach them, we're to lead them, help them to live a life that matches their profession, and is not a contradiction to what they profess. And so in the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul lists members of a household from older men to servants and how they're supposed to conduct themselves if they are really believers. And you hear Paul using words like exhort and rebuke throughout the letter because Christians here in Crete were not living up to the standard, the high standard that they're called to live. Yet the expectation is still there. Though you are not living the way you're still supposed to live, we still expect you to live to this standard because the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Not tomorrow, not in eternity, but today. And it is not done by your will. It is not done by your power. It is not done by your morality or your righteousness. It is not done by your drive to be good. But by the grace of God, you are able to say no to the ungodly things and the passions of the world and live a life that brings God honor and glory. And we should expect all Christians to live with this standard, urging people so that their profession can match their lifestyle and even rebuke if necessary. Toby Mack, a Christian musician, he once wrote, unconditional love 
does not mean unconditional acceptance of bad behavior. Where we as Christians, we welcome and receive and love all types of people because that's what God has done for us. But we don't tolerate every behavior. There are moments we tell people to stop, to repent, and to change your ways and trust in God. But all too easily, we excuse ourselves and other people when we don't live to this high standard. If we're really honest, we, we excuse ourselves more than other people, right? How can you do this? You gotta be better. Have patience on me. <laughs> you got you're not acting the way that you're supposed to. I'm so frustrated and disappointed. Be gracious to me, right? Try to understand where I'm coming from. And so we tend to easily excuse ourselves more than others, but we do easily, we do tend to easily excuse ourselves and people around us for not living according to this high standard. And you know what? Excuses may be valid if it really was up to you on how you're supposed to live. If it was really up to your will and your ability, then yeah, perhaps we might excuse people for not living to the standard that we're supposed to live. Yet it is the grace of God that trains us. So in exhorting and rebuking, we turn to God's grace to help us live a life that we're supposed to live to encourage people to live a life that they're supposed to live instead of trusting in our will or our abilities. I was told of a story of, of a young son, and he was just trying to draw a circle on a piece of paper. But all his attempts of trying to draw a circle ended up looking like an amoeba. It's just, I don't know if the little hand was shaking and there's, you know, he was just trying to draw a, a circular shape. It, it didn't even look like an oval. And so he did what all little children would do when he can't do what he wanted to do. Throw a tantrum, get upset, and, 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 and you know, in, in frustration, perhaps even cry. So the loving father would place his hand over his son's hand and would draw the circle. And the amazement of that circle which he has seen, he, the young son now looks at his father and he says, I did it! As a young believer, it's easy, I think, for us to pat ourselves on the back for all the things that we have accomplished. Look what I did in the church. Look what I was able to do during my personal time. I did it. But as we grow and, and, and mature with deeper understanding of who God is and the grace that we receive, we realize that all the good works that we have done, it was not us, that us in our nature, we in our nature, we did nothing good, but it was God all along. For the young believers, they may rejoice at all the occasions of the, I did it. But as we grow and, 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 and have a greater understanding of God and his grace, we rejoice at, the, at all the occasions of, it was you. It was never me, it was you. Dear brother and sister in faith, have you been living a powerless and graceless life? You know, as, when you read the Bible for yourselves, you find that we, in, as creatures of God, we are created as limited beings. We are finite, and, and there are things that, a lot of things that we cannot do. But it seems like when we read the Bible that God is calling us limited creatures to do limitless things. That we are to love as Jesus loved, to forgive as he forgave, to have mercy on those as we, to have mercy on others as we have received mercy from God. 
to care for the orphans and the widows and bring those who are lost and poor and sacrificially give ourselves and our resources to others, even though that may be at a certain loss to ourselves. That when we read the Bible, it seems like God is really calling us limited creatures to do limitless things. And that's the standard. That's what we are supposed to do. That's how we're supposed to conduct ourselves and live a life that is pleasing to God. But dear friends, have you been forsaking the grace of God by not forsaking your sin? Bring to remembrance, if you have heard this before, if you have known this before, how you have been saved by God's grace. It was a gift to you so that you can't even boast in yourself. You can't pat yourself because you come to realize it's been God all along. And this grace goes further by not merely forgiving what you had done, but transforming you to be what God has called you to be. That even someone who grew up with bad reputations don't have to be defined by those reputations anymore. Because there is power and grace given to you to live a new life. That what you were in the past is what you were in the past, no longer who you are now. That by grace of God, you are trained to be more like Christ and that you can really be more like Christ in all that you do. And so those bad reputations of the past don't have to define you anymore. You and I in Christ are called to live with a high standard, a life worth, of great worthy and, and, and mannerism. Not because we are great and right people, but because the grace of God is present and given to us. So in times when you feel like you are lacking, in moments when you feel like you are struggling, and even at times when you are failing, this morning, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to give you the grace to live a life that will bring him glory. But this grace that trains is not only for those who are lacking, struggling, or failing. This grace is also for other Christians who are seeing Christians struggling, lacking, and failing. There are those who, perhaps there are those in this room as well, that outwardly, you are really good at being a Christian. You know the right things, you have the right knowledge, you, you know the right things to say, and you are very diligent in doing Christian things. And I think it's very easy to forget in moments when we're doing so well that it has been because of God's grace over us, not because of your intellect, not because of your strength or will, but because God has been gracious to you. But it's easy to forget that, and it's easy to pat ourselves in the back when things are going so well in our lives. Upon just conversing with people and hearing people and the relationships that we are building, um, this is I th how I've known that people have forgotten that it is because of God's grace that you are doing so well. You start to make comparisons with other people by either giving yourself a lot of praise or heavily criticizing others or both. That you forget everything that you're doing, all good and perfect work that you are doing with your hands. It is because of God's grace. And you forget that it's his grace when you start looking at how good you have been, how wonderful you are, and why other people are not as good as you. And you start criticizing people. Yet it is because grace is, it is because by grace we have been saved, and it is because grace trains us to live the high calling you and I as Christians can expect ourselves and fellow Christians to live by this high standard while at the same time offering forgiveness when they fail. 
I know you are weak. I know you are unable. But it is grace of God that trains you to live the Christian life. So there's forgiveness when people fail us. While, while we still maintain the expectation of the high standard of living. And because it is by grace that we are becoming more like Jesus and doing what honors and glorifies God, we can feel frustrated and we may even feel disappointed at people. But always following up our frustrations and disappointments with prayers for that person or people. Think about all the people in the church that disappoint you. I'm sure all of us can think of one or two people that we are disappointed by. Dear brother and sister, let me ask you, as you have these people in mind, do you pray for them? Do you pray for those who disappoint you? Do you seek that for God to be gracious in their lives so that they can be trained in godliness? If not, then I hope that God will be gracious to you this morning to help you to see just how much you have failed to love your brother and sister in Christ and that you would turn to Jesus so that you can renounce your ungodly attitudes, your ungodly demeanors, and live the self-controlled, upright, and godly life today. Just as God can save anyone, he can train up anyone. Do you believe that? So in Christ Jesus, we have grace that saves, and we have grace that trains, but we have also received grace that gives us hope. Paul reminds Titus that we are waiting for a blessed hope, the return of our King Jesus. And all people need to be reminded that there is going to be an end. Our life has an expiration date. And this is why the preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that it's better to go to a house of mourning. It's better for you to go to funerals than to go to a house of feasting like wedding receptions and ceremonies. That when you have an option to go to one or the other, that you would, it's wise for you to choose to go to funeral services instead of wedding ceremonies. And so I would ask of you as a, as a brother in Christ that when you have to make that choice or when an opportunity is given to you to attend a funeral service or a memorial service, that you do not miss it out, that you do not miss out and that you would attend it for the sake of comforting those who are mourning, but also because it will cause you to examine how you have been living as you come to realization that all life has an end. That we may, as like the song that we have heard, that we may count the number of our days to grow in wisdom. And we need to remember how everything's going to end. Be reminded that there's an end to all things, but also remember how everything is going to end. You and I, as believers in this world, we will be tempted to abandon the faith due to the shifting cultures where Christians will be considered intolerant and bigoted and all sorts of accusations and unjust treatment. And so you may be tempted to abandon the faith because of that. You may be tempted to abandon the faith because you see so much hypocrisy around you in and outside the church. And you may be tempted to abandon the faith because of the mere difficulties of trying to trust that God is good when life is so hard. But we need to remember how everything is going to end precisely because we are tempted to remember that there is going to be full judgment of evil and that the saints of God will be vindicated for what they have been holding on to as we dwell in glory in God's home, which will be our new home one day. 
God remains to be gracious to his people and he will not abandon us because he gave his son to redeem us from all lawlessness and purifies us in Christ as his treasured possessions. Now, why would God all of a sudden stop being gracious to us when he paid such a high price to keep us? And so it is by grace that we have the assurance of of his loving kindness and goodness over us despite our circumstances, despite our troubles. But for some, when you think about the end, it may be terrifying for you that you are gripped in fear as you think about the world around you and the end that is to come for us all. And perhaps some of us are gripped with fear because your lives may speak more clearly about who and what you have been following more than what, you, what your words are proclaiming. That by your conduct, by your demeanor, by your actions, it may prove to you and to others more that you have been following something other than Jesus our Lord. Even though you may come here and profess with your mouth so freely that Jesus is your Lord. So if the end gives you fear, instead of hope, I want to encourage and call you this morning to turn to Christ, say, our, our, to turn to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was given to us for redemption, and to ask him to give you the grace to live a life that is pleasing to him, to, to receive grace where you will be zealous for good works, be passionate about doing good works in this world, and be assured that you have been truly saved and transformed by his grace. And if you are not living by the standard that which God's people are expected to live, then I hope at some point in that time of rebellion that you would be thankful when you are disciplined. One of the greatest responsibilities that we have as a church and as ministers, as pastors, is to discipline its members. And discipline is necessary because it's a warning to people of the consequences of vain confessions that you've just been speaking with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you have not believed in your heart that he has been risen from the dead, that he is God. And discipline is a warning to such people. It's not necessary to make our church look good. We know people don't like to be disciplined. And and if you didn't know, we pastors, we don't like disciplining people either. Me, as a father, I don't even like disciplining my own kids. But it's something that needs to be done. But if we keep allowing professing Christians to live in error and keep living in sin, would it be a loving thing for us knowing that their actions, and, 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 and their actions might actually prove that they have not believed and are genuinely in danger of God's wrath and judgment? Wouldn't it be an unloving thing for, for, people to simply, for, for us to simply let people live the way they want to live without course correction, without imploring, begging, and rebuking? so that they may repent and turn to Jesus. Not just on the corporate level, but for you as individuals. Do not, in your relationships, in your conversations, in your community gatherings, do not let sin roam around in our congregation. Don't tolerate sin. Oftentimes, we, we, we don't tolerate the, the big sins. Right? We, we've got to make sure that a husband and wife is staying faithful in their marriage. We've got to make sure that people are being, you know, right and moral in these big things that we consider in the church. And it's often the the small sins that we tend to overlook and tolerate, like grumbling, slander, worry, gossip. But sin brings ruin and misery regardless of its size. Because that's what sin does. And so in our gatherings as individuals, as Christians, 
as professing believers that we do not tolerate sin in all of our community gatherings. God gives us the grace to hope for eternal life in his everlasting kingdom. And one of the ways that you and I are assured that, that we have this eternal life is, how, is, is by how you respond to conviction. One of the ways that God gives us hope in, is seeing how we respond when we are convicted of sin or when fellow brother or sister in Christ comes to you and lovingly confronts you about sin. How do you respond to that? That may tell you whether you truly believe and whether you have truly received saving and transformative grace or whether you have been living with simple lip service without genuine transformation in your hearts. For as we have right reactions to our convictions, it is an evidence that we have received God's saving and transformative grace. So we exhort and we rebuke if necessary in order that our brother or our sister may be restored and grow with certainty that she, he or she has eternal life in Christ, knowing that it is God's grace to give us that hope through our relationships. But some of us here may be fearful of the future because you simply do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. Maybe for some of you, you have experienced a lot of hardships and you are just doubtful of what the end is going to be. May I remind you and encourage you this morning that in times when you are fearful of life and this world because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, that you would remember how the beloved Son of God gave himself up for us and will work all things for our good, that God is working in us for our good. So let us respond this morning to the grace that we have received and the grace that we are receiving. That by his grace we have been saved. That by his grace we are being trained. And by his grace we are given hope, regardless of our circumstances, to know for certainty that God is with us in his loving kindness and goodness. Let's pray together. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that we received and the grace that we are receiving to live a life that is pleasing to you. And if there's any contradiction to our confessions, to our professions, and the way that we live, I pray, Father, that you will rightly convict our hearts. If there are moments we're so blinded by our actions that you would bring our beloved brothers and sisters to bring correction in our lives. And I pray that you would give us the grace to respond rightly. Help us as a church to be faithful believers who will not be content in our lying state or in our state of being evil beasts or lazy gluttons, but know that we are transformed and renewed day by day by the grace that you give to us, that we may be genuine salt and light of the world, showing people who Jesus is and the power that he works to make us new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.